And we'll turn back, if you've got your Bibles there, to Genesis chapter 20, to that, to that passage that uh, Jason read for us. And before, before we look at those words, uh, let's just spend a moment in prayer again before we, uh, before we open up the Bible together. Uh, Father God, um, on first glance, as we read through, as we read through this passage, Lord, um, it, it seems a bit strange. It seems like a, a chapter that maybe doesn't apply to us uh, here today in Galway, maybe 6,000 years after the, um, the events in, in which, uh, which were related there happened. And so, Father, I just pray that as we uh, come before you this morning, as we come to hear from you, Lord, I pray that you'd, you'd help me to speak clearly and faithfully uh, from, your, from your word. And Father, I pray that you'd speak to all of us, that we'd be able to see um, just how your word speaks to us today, even from this passage that, that maybe uh, doesn't, doesn't resonate with us, that doesn't uh, kind of uh, tell us things that immediately we see as things that are, are clear for us today. And so, Lord, I pray, yeah, you just make your word shine this morning, that it would, it would speak for itself, Lord, and that we would, we would all take something away from it today. Amen. So, uh, I'm sure you've all heard of uh, IBM, the um, company that, that makes uh, computers, and uh, they, well, they used to make computers, they don't, don't do that so much anymore, they've kind of moved off into doing cloud services, because that's, uh, that's where all the, the big money is now, and, uh, and kind of computer services and consultancy and things like that. But when they, when they started out as a company, they were founded by a man called Tom Watson Sr. Sorry, Jason, not the golfer, um, different guy. Uh, so Tom Watson Sr., he was, he was the man who founded this big company, IBM, that still exists today. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, he's quite a hard-nosed uh, businessman, a real kind of professional uh, entrepreneur who piled his life and loads and loads of money into this company to build it up into the global mega corporation that it is today. And there's a story uh, told about, uh, an, about a young executive who um, was given uh, $12 million dollars by Tom Watson Sr. to build a new part of the business. And he was given a year to go and uh, set up a new part of IBM to go and do whatever it was. And it was a total failure, just a complete and utter car crash. All that $12 million gone. And this young executive kind of comes into Tom Watson Sr.'s office and goes, it's a total failure. I want to hand in my resignation. Just let me leave here and go away. And this Tom Watson Sr., apparently he roars back at this young executive. No, I don't want your resignation. I've just spent $12 million educating you. It's time to get you to work. I've spent $12 million educating you. It's about time you get to work. Can you imagine that that, that, that young executive made the same mistake again, that he, that he spent 12 million more dollars of IBM's money and went back to that office and said, here's my resignation? Or do you think he built up IBM 
and helped it to go in the direction that he wanted it to go. As we look at, as we look at this story today of Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech, we're going to see, if you've been with us in Genesis before, Abraham not like that young executive. He's making the same mistakes that he's made before. In fact, these verses are almost, uh, almost a, a reflection, almost the same kind of story as ones that we've seen before. So Abraham has been through the same kind of pattern of behavior before, and it didn't go well then, and it's not going to go particularly well in this chapter either. So God has promised, God has invested more than $12 million in Abraham. He's invested his promises, his covenant promises in Abraham, his oath in Abraham. He's promised to make Abraham a great nation, to bless Abraham and to make his name great, so that Abraham will become a blessing to the nations. We've seen that promise in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. We've seen it repeated over and over again. We've also seen that Abraham has tried to force the promise that he is going to become a great nation by trying to, uh, trying to have a child with uh, his servant. We've seen that he can't wait for God's timing to bring these promises to fruition. And so, last week we saw in Genesis 19, uh, God bringing his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But remember where we left that. That God saved Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah because of Abraham, because of his relationship to Abraham. And so God is still working in Abraham's life. And here in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1, we see that Abraham and Sarah are kind of traveling around. They're they're wandering around through the desert in the Middle East, and they journey towards the territory of the Negev and live between Kadesh and Shur, and then eventually they sojourn in this city area, Gerar. So they're right on the southwest edge of the land that that God has promised to them. And from the journey they've taken through Genesis it's likely this is an area they haven't been in before. It's likely an area that they're not known in. And so Abraham meets Abimelech, the king of Gerar, or or they're in, in this area of Gerar, and they meet this character, Abimelech. And Abraham's been saying of his wife, Sarah, she's not my wife, she's my sister. And again, this is pattern that we've seen before, behavior that we've seen before. Abraham does exactly the same thing earlier on in Genesis. They're in Egypt. So there's a kind of ruse that they've pulled before. Abraham is fearful for his life because of his wife, Sarah. He's fearful that they're going to kill him because of his wife. And so he says, she's my sister. And then Pharaoh takes Sarah away in Egypt. And here, Abimelech, the king of the city of Gerar, sends for Sarah and takes her away from Abraham. So this, this character, Abimelech, his name means my father is king. There's probably, like we meet, we're going to meet another Abimelech uh, in the next chapter and then in Genesis 26, and then it just, this kind of name keeps cropping up, and it just means my father is king. There's probably a whole dynasty of these people in this area. Um, 
so he is, he is the king here, and he calls and he takes Sarah away. He doesn't offer anything for Sarah. He just, just takes her. He doesn't give Abraham anything here. He just takes her away, takes her into his possession. And so what happens to Abimelech? He goes to bed, and he starts to have a dream. God appears to him in a dream. And this dream isn't one he's going to get back to sleep from, is it? It's not really a happy dream if you read this, uh, these verses. It's a bit more like a nightmare. Genesis uh, 20 and verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And so Abimelech is fearful here as well, not just for himself, but for his whole people. Verse 4, Abimelech had not approached Sarah, so he said, Lord, will you kill not just an innocent man, Abimelech, but an innocent people, the whole city, the whole of Abimelech's people in Gerar. And so Abimelech pleads with God because of the circumstances here. He says, I am innocent. Did Abraham not himself say to me, Sarah is my sister? And she herself, Sarah, said, Abraham is my brother. And then listen to what Abimelech says to God. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Abimelech is pleading with God out of his, out of his innocence here. He, he's saying, the circumstances have conspired against me here. This isn't, this isn't something that I've done willfully to sin against you, to sin against Abraham, to do this willfully, to take a man's wife willfully. I'm innocent in this. And God says, yes. I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning. God's plan is at work here. Even though Abraham and Sarah have kind of got themselves into this mess of being economical with the truth, of continuing in a pattern that we've seen before that didn't go well, God is still at work here. God says, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God has intervened in this situation. It was I who kept you from sinning. Against me, says God. God's plan is at work. Not Abraham's plan, not Sarah's plan. It's God's plan. And God's plan now is that he says to Abimelech, return her. Return her so that you will live. And so that Abraham can pray for you. Abraham, God says, is a prophet. And so we see, we see what a prophet is in terms of Genesis. If we look back into chapter 18, uh, we see that, that Abraham intercedes. He prays 
to God for Sodom and Gomorrah. And God reveals his plans to Abraham in chapter 18 as well. And that echoes what Amos writes in Amos chapter 3, verse 7 about a prophet. That God reveals his plan to his servants, the prophets. And so God says, Abraham is a prophet. He intercedes, and I have revealed my plan to him. But the plan here is that God's mercy will spread. Return, Sarah, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. If you do not return her, you shall surely die, and all who are yours. So God's mercy is going to spread here. God's mercy spreads first to Abimelech. Return, Sarah, you shall live. Your, your people shall live. And I can continue my plan for Abraham and Sarah. My mercy will spread. God's, God's mercy is an in, enduring characteristic of God, isn't it? We, see, we sing sometimes uh, of God's endless mercy. And in Psalm uh, 23, we read, that goodness and mercy follow me and I shall dwell in the Lord's house forever. It's by God's mercy that we have that opportunity to come before the throne of God and to live in God's kingdom, as citizens of God's kingdom, and to dwell in the Lord's house for all eternity. So I want to pause there for a second, and I want to think just about what God has said to Abimelech. Because we're going to see that Abimelech doesn't quite follow through, doesn't quite understand what God has said to him. Listen again to what God says to Abimelech in chapter 20 and verse 6. God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I, God, who kept you from sinning against who? We're automatically going to think, okay, Abimelech has gone and he has taken Abraham's wife, Sarah. So who do we automatically think Abimelech has sinned against? Abraham, don't we? Yeah. Abraham. He's taken Abraham's wife. But what does God say? God said to him in the dream, I kept you from sinning against me. And I think, I just want us to, to pause and reflect on that for a, for a moment. Here, we see that God is saying, even though you've gone and taken Sarah, taken the man's wife, the sin is against me. So if I, if I sin, if I, if I get angry at Will, and I, I know you can like, think that that's like, just completely impossible, that's never going to happen, Right? But just imagine it for a second. Imagine that it's something that could happen. If I get angry at Will, I need Will's forgiveness. But I don't primarily need Will's forgiveness. I need God's forgiveness. Because yes, I might have sinned against Will, but I have sinned against God as well. I need primarily God's forgiveness for the sin that I have committed. Sin is primarily against God. Therefore, 
I kept you from sinning against me. So how often do we maybe sin against each other and instead of asking for forgiveness just from each other, or just ask for forgiveness from each other and not bring that sin before God and ask for God's forgiveness as well. Because God's saying here, Abimelech, you've taken Sarah and you've sinned against me. So Abimelech needs not just Abraham's forgiveness in rectifying the situation, he needs God's forgiveness as well. God says here, return her, Abraham will pray for you, and you shall live. We also see as well in these verses, like, as we read ahead, you might have noticed as, G, as uh, Jason was reading here, in verse 11, Abraham says, look, I told, you, I told you this great story that we'd concocted about Sarah being my sister because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. So in the context of what's going on here, we kind of look at it and we go, can God rule in Gerar? Where Abraham, God's, God's chosen person, has come to this city and says, like, I don't think there's any fear of God here. Can God rule here? Can God be king in this city where Abraham thinks there is no fear of God? God rules in the heart of this pagan king. He rules in the heart of Abimelech. He comes in and says, I have kept you from sinning against me. And you can do this. You can return Sarah and you can live. God's sovereignty, God's kingship is unhindered. Even at the heart of this city, of the king of this pagan city in Canaan, where Abraham doesn't think he can find anyone who fears God. And as we, as we go about following Jesus, as we go about building the kingdom in Galway, and doing God's work here in Galway, how often do we maybe meet somebody and think, there is no chance that God could ever rule in your heart? There is no chance. Is that something that you've ever thought? Have you ever met somebody and thought, you're just beyond Jesus. Because God is saying here, in these words, in the way he acts in Gerar, that he has unhindered sovereignty. The saviour of the world is king. And we don't often, we don't always, sorry, uh, see or understand how God rules, how Jesus rules, but we do see it revealed. We see it revealed in our own lives. We see it revealed in our church's life. And God's sovereignty is unhindered. God's sovereignty is unhindered. So back to, the, back to these verses. And we see in verse uh, 8 and verse 9 that Abimelech communicates to his, his people what's happened overnight and understandably, they're very afraid. 
I think I think I would have been as well if I was one of those men. I think if uh, I think if my king kind of woke up, or well, let's say let's say the mayor of Galway kind of wakes up tomorrow morning and uh, comes on Galway Bay FM and says, "I had a dream from God last night, and he said if I don't sort this one thing out today, we're all dead." I think we'd be afraid, wouldn't we? Right. So Abimelech's people are afraid, and so Abimelech calls Abraham and says to him. What have you done to us? It's a fair question, right, isn't it? What have you done to us? And then I think we see that Abimelech, even though God has spoken to him, doesn't quite get it. How have I sinned against you? What has God just said to him? You've sinned against me. And now as Abimelech calls Abraham, how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. So I think maybe Abimelech doesn't still quite get what's going on here. But he, again, has a fair point. You have done to me, he says to Abraham, things that ought not to be done. And Abraham turns in verse 11 and says, I did this because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. And so, so we see Abraham and Sarah kind of telling half-truths here. They're, they're telling only half the story about their marriage arrangement. Yeah, they are kind of half-brother and half-sister, and so there's a little bit of truth in what they're saying, but they've been so economical with the truth that it's hurting them, and it's hurting Abimelech and his people. And this marriage arrangement, we, we see it again repeated in Genesis as, uh, as Abraham's descendants look to insulate themselves from the influence of the Canaanites and the Hittites, but eventually, we see in the law in Leviticus uh, this kind of close marriage relationship being outlawed. And so Abimelech brings gifts to Abraham, sheep, oxen, male servants, female servants, and gives them to Abraham and returns Sarah, his wife, to him. And says, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And so we see God's plan continuing to work out. Abraham is given part of Canaan, part of the promised land to dwell in by Abimelech. But also, there is more here. He brings a thousand pieces of silver and gives them to Abraham, as he says to Sarah in verse 16. Behold, I have given your brother, so you can see Abimelech is still really a little bit annoyed here. He's like, your brother I have given a thousand pieces of silver to you as a sign of Sarah's innocence in the eyes of all. That thousand pieces of silver, that's like 11 and a half kilograms of silver. That's quite a lot of silver. That would go quite a long way even in today's money. But it's to show that Abimelech has not behaved improperly to Sarah that he will not be the father of any children she may bear. 
And that's important because God's plan that Abraham and Sarah will have children, Abraham will grow into a great nation, remains safe. And so there's this public affirmation of Abimelech's innocence, of Sarah's innocence. And we can compare that, can't we, with Abraham's self-serving deception as he, as he goes about kind of saying, well, I'd rather not, I'd rather not be killed because of Sarah right now. Here, Abimelech is so generous to Abraham, even while uh, remaining cross and angry with him. And so as God said, he would. Abraham prays and God heals Abimelech and heals his wife and female slaves so that they can bear children. And we see the importance of this. God has said that Abraham would bring a blessing to the nations. Maybe this isn't the kind of blessing that we have in mind, but he is uh, the healing of Abimelech and the healing of his wife and female slaves so that they can bear children is a blessing to the nations. God is faithful to his promises to Abraham from chapter 12 and chapter 15. Even though Abraham has kind of wandered around, those promises remain. And God has power over the fertility of the slaves, the servants in Abimelech's court. And that's important in the flow here of the story of Genesis. Because we're going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger as we, uh, as we go for the summer. Um, you, you'll need to have, coming back in September, we'll need to have a like, previously on Genesis kind of five minutes. But we'll come back and we'll see that God, in the flow of the story of Genesis, here has power over the fertility of Abimelech's court. And in 21, has power over Sarah's fertility as Isaac is born. And the promise continues to be fulfilled. So we see that Abraham has received promises from God far more than $12 million of investment. There is promises, there is covenant, there is relationship with the creator of the universe. And Abraham doesn't fully trust. Instead of learning in, because of what God has done for him and shown him, he repeats the same mistakes, the same sinful, shameful behavior. And yet, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22, when we see Isaac has been born and God calls Abraham to put Isaac on an altar and sacrifice Isaac, Abraham has changed. Abraham has grown and trusts to the point then that he is willing to go through with what God asks him to do. He grows and changes. God has invested, I would argue, even more than his promises and his, and his covenant in me and in you. God sent his son into the world for me and for you. And he went to a cross and died on a cross and was raised again for me and for you.
And we are called by, by God to live, to grow in how we live for Jesus, to find integrity in our lives and our behaviors. Yet how often do we not fully trust in God? How often do I lose my patience and run out of patience? How often do I feel down and not ready to trust the promises of God because they don't feel quite immediate enough? But God has invested more than $12 million in me. He invested his son in me. And so, as Jason said at the start of the service, we have been saved by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, we, as we have been saved, we are being saved more and more from the power of sin to become more like Jesus. We can't do that in our own power, in our own strength. When Paul writes to, a, writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul isn't asking me to do that by myself because he knows that that's impossible. Paul, who wrote those verses, was one who stood and led the murder of a, a, an apostle, the murder of a follower of Jesus. He persecuted the followers of Jesus. He didn't change because he thought, it's a good idea to change today. He changed because he met Jesus. He changed by the power of the Holy Spirit working in his heart. And so, in Oramore, in the church in Oramore, we've been reading through uh, John 15, 16, 17 in our services. Yesterday, we talked about how the Spirit witnesses to us and then leads us in all truth. That's how we become more like Jesus. That's how we grow. That's how we put those mistakes that we keep making off. As we grow, as we are witnessed to by the Spirit, as we are led in all truth by the Spirit. And that's why it's so important for us to meet together so that we can encourage each other. We can learn how to pray for each other, to help each other to grow because we can't do that on our own, in our own power. We need the Spirit to do it. And we need each other to look out for each other, to pray for each other, and to help each other to grow more like Jesus. Remember this morning that God has invested far more than $12 million in educating you. He's invested his son in you, in saving you from sin. This morning, 
God has work for us to do. It's not building up a company, a multinational company. God calls us to go and witness to the kingdom, about the kingdom, in the world around us. And God wants us to put off the mistakes of our past, to be changed, renewed in the spirit of our minds, putting on a new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness through the power of his Holy Spirit.